Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, I Have Seen the Lord. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Easter Sunday, April 21st, 2019. I spent last weekend at Why Christian 2019, a conference hosted by Lutheran minister Nadia Boltz-Weber and post-evangelical writer Rachel Held Evans. Along with hundreds of other Christians from around the country, I sat in the majestic Grace Cathedral in San Francisco and listened as speaker after speaker, pastors, journalists, bloggers, parents, poets, activists, and seminarians testified about their faith. Why Christian was the question they attempted to answer in their moving and often painful narratives. Why, amidst all the challenges and disappointments of American life in 2019, the historic and temporary failures of the Church, the faith-shaking traumas of their own pasts, do they still have skin in the game? I heard the story of a priest who crossed the Mexican border in the dead of night at the age of seven and heard Jesus' consoling voice during her long, terrifying journey. I listened to a transgender man who grew up poor and experienced his first communion when his grandmother invited him to open her refrigerator and eat freely for the first time in his life. I cried at the story of an African-American activist who mourned her way to God after the sudden death of her newborn daughter. And I cried again as an Asian-American seminarian talked about wrestling with his faith after being raped as a teenager. If I went to the conference expecting an answer, a single coherent and conclusive answer to the question, why Christian, I didn't hear it. What I heard instead are variations on a theme, the theme of hope in the midst of struggle, as in, here's what happened when the pain, trauma, loss, and disappointment of my life bumped up against the inexplicable love of God. Here's what it felt like when mortality's no collided with divinity's yes. Let me tell you what I saw, heard, smelled, and tasted when the specific death I thought would end me, the death of a child, a relationship, a dream, a belief, an expectation, encountered resurrection. Here's a story of what happened when I saw the Lord. This week, the Church celebrates Easter, the high point of our liturgical year. With trumpets, Easter lilies, choirs, and alleluia banners, we proclaim the great triumph of Christ's rising from the dead. The wilderness of Lent is behind us. The tomb is empty and a bright new day has dawned. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I won't lie. I love Easter. I love the communal joy and celebration of Easter morning services. I love the music, the vestments, the crowds, and the lights. I love the triumphant and public acclamation of Jesus' historic and miraculous rising. But as I sit this week with the gospel accounts of the resurrection, what I notice is something quieter and more mysterious than the full-on jubilation I experience at church. I'm drawn to what Frederick Buechner calls the darkness of the resurrection itself, that morning when it was hard to be sure what you were seeing. Though the last 2,000 years have honed and codified our Easter acclamations, what we know from the Gospels is that the original disciples stumbled around in the half-light on that third day after Jesus' crucifixion, confused and afraid. Was it an angel sitting in that unlit tomb? Were those shadows in the corner really grave clothes? That quiet stranger lingering outside, was he a gardener or someone else? Why did he look vaguely familiar? Early in the morning, while it was still dark. That's where Easter really begins. It begins in darkness. It begins with fear, bewilderment, pain, and a profound loss of certainty. The creeds and clarifications we cherish these days came later. What came first were many variations on a single theme, struggle and hope. As in, here's what happens when ordinary people brush up against an extraordinary God. 
Here's what it looks like when broken, hungry humanity encounters the bizarre and the inexplicable in the half-light of dawn. When I was growing up, the key Easter fact to proclaim was that Jesus rose, physically, bodily, literally, from the dead. As long as I believed in the historicity of the resurrection, I was safe. Later, as an adult, I encountered other versions of the Easter narrative. The resurrection was a metaphor in these versions, not a literal historical fact, but a potent symbol of transformation, renewal, and rebirth. Whether or not Jesus physically rose again didn't matter. His friends and followers experienced his continued presence, and that was enough. The fact is, the reservation, resurrection happened in total darkness. Sometime in the pre-dawn hours of that Sunday morning, a great mystery transpired in secret. No sunlight illuminated the event. No human being witnessed it. And even now, 2,000 years later, no human narrative can contain it. It exceeds all of our attempts to pin it down because it is a mystery known only to God. Whatever the resurrection was and is, its fullness lies in holy darkness, shielded from our eyes. All we can know is that somehow, in an ancient tomb on a starry night, God worked in secret to bring life out of death. Somehow, from the heart of loss and misery, God enacted salvation. In our gospel story, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus first because she chooses to remain in the darkness. Peter and the beloved disciple leave when they see the empty tomb, but Mary stays, bewildered and bereft. As Natalie Boltzweber puts it, she remains present to what is real, to what is actually happening. She does so even when what is real feels unbearable. In my own life, I'm finding it increasingly true that clarity, hope, and healing come when I'm willing to linger in hard and barren places, places where the usual platitudes fall flat and all easy answers prove inadequate. Jesus comes in the darkness, and sometimes it takes a long time to recognize him. He doesn't look the way I expect him to look. He doesn't let me cling to my old ideas. He disappears again just as I grab hold of him. But when he comes, he calls my name, and in that instant I recognize both myself and him. In a beautiful essay on the resurrection, theologian and writer Chris Barnes reminds us of what actually matters during Holy Week. The question that Easter asks of us is not, do we believe in the doctrine of the resurrection? Frankly, that is not particularly hard. What the Gospels ask is not, do you believe, but have you encountered the risen Christ? What I see in the resurrection narratives are individual people having profoundly individual encounters with Christ. The encounters don't look identical. When Peter sees the empty tomb, he runs away. When the beloved disciple sees it, he believes without comprehension. When Mary sees it, she weeps and waits for more. In other words, we come to the empty tomb as ourselves, for good or for ill. What matters is encountering the risen Jesus in the particulars of our own lives. What matters is finding in the empty tomb the hope we need for our own struggles, losses, traumas, and disappointments. Whatever universal claims we make as Christians must begin in the rich, fertile ground of our own hearts, our own stories. Whatever acclamations we cry out on Easter Sunday must begin with a willingness to linger in the garden, desolate and alone, listening for the sounds of our own names spoken in love. For our testimonies to ring true, they must originate in radical, intimate encounter. The question is not, why should people in general believe, but rather, why do you believe? How has a risen Christ revealed himself to you? This type of witness isn't automatic or easy. It requires risk. The risk of hanging on to hope when all else fails. The risk of sitting in the dark after everyone else runs away. The risk of waiting for the fullness of our stories to reveal themselves over time. Often it's only in retrospect, only as I look back at the gravesides of my life, that I find the beginnings of new life. Poet R.S. Thomas describes a process this way in his poem, The Answer. There have been times when, after long on my knees in a cold chancel, a stone has rolled from my mind, 
and I have looked in and seen the old questions lie folded and in a place by themselves, like the piled grave clothes of love's risen body. This Easter, may the Christ who rose in the darkness lead us into new life, new light, and new hope. May we know him in the half-lit places, the shadowy places, the hard places. May we dare to linger in the tomb until he calls our names and sends us forth to share his good news with the world. And when we are asked, why Christian, may our answers be honest and humble, earned and true. May they witness to hope and struggle, braided together. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For books this week, Dan reviews Why Religion, A Personal Story by Elaine Pagels. It's hard to believe that it's been 40 years since Elaine Pagels, the Harrington Spear Payne Foundation professor of religion at Princeton University, published her book, The Gnostic Gospels. That best-selling and award-winning book was a popular introduction to the 52 Christian and Gnostic texts that were discovered by a farmer in the town of Nag Hammadi, Egypt, in 1945, not to be confused with the 1947 discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Although best known for that controversial book, since finishing her graduate studies at Harvard in 1970, Pagels has published another eight books that explore various trajectories of these non-canonical texts. As its subtitle suggests, her newest book is different. After 50 years working on the Gnostic texts as a scholar, this intensely personal book describes how these texts have worked on her as a grieving mother and wife. In April of 1987, Pagel's son, Mark, died at the age of six after having been born with a hole in one of the walls of his heart, a condition for which they always knew there was no treatment or cure. Fifteen months later, in July of 1988, her husband, Hines, died in a mountain climbing accident. In the language of the Quakers, Pagels explores how the Gnostic texts, and especially the secret wisdom in the Gospel of Thomas, spoke to her condition. Why do we suffer? How is one to negotiate the unspeakable, unimaginable sorrow, the shock, and the messy emotions? How do you go on without drowning in despair? What about the anger, the guilt, and the illusion that we have control over our lives? Her book thus takes its place in the literature of grief as she searches for healing and meaning in a chaotic world. Pagel says that she's not a traditional believer, but that she nonetheless remains incorrigibly religious. At the end of her book, she acknowledges that her own conclusions might not speak to others. We all have varieties of religious experiences, she says, quoting William James. Nonetheless, beyond the particular and the personal, she affirms something universal for us all. In the words of her beloved husband, Heinz, she has decided to stand on the side of life. For movies this week, Dan reviews... Bohemian Rhapsody. This biopic about Freddie Mercury, the lead vocalist for the British rock band Queen, is a classic splitter. General movie audiences loved it, with a 98% rating on Google users like this movie. Professional movie critics unanimously panned the movie as historically inaccurate, formulaic, superficial, and melodramatic in the worst sense. I think both opinions are right. Mercury's story is inherently interesting, even if poorly told. He was born as Farouk Bulsara into a Parsi, Zoroastrian family in Zanzibar. His family moved to India and then to England, where he changed his name to Freddie Mercury and helped to form Queen while working as a baggage handler at Heathrow. He was famously flamboyant on stage, bisexual, and died of AIDS-related pneumonia in 1991 at the age of 45. The movie traces the meteoric rise of Queen and then Mercury's decision to go solo. The band then reunites to rock the house at Wembley Stadium for a global audience of nearly 2 billion people in 150 countries at the 1998 Live Aid Benefit Concert. The title of the movie comes from Queen's 1975 song of the same name, 
which their producer refused to record because he considered it an incoherent mishmash that was way too long at six minutes, and which was horribly criticized when it was released, but then went on to be a wildly popular song. And finally, for poetry, Seven Stanzas at Easter by John Updike. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to disclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if he will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 21st, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.